Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to episode 203 of Real Life Ghost Stories. Now, before we start this week, I just want to point out that it is incredibly windy in Canterbury. So if you can hear the wind in the background of this recording, I apologize greatly, but I don't, in fact, control the weather. So our Patreon subscribers this week that I would like to thank, I would like to thank Carly Knuckleby, Carolyn Eagleson, Charlotte Hooker, Hayley Rivers, Saza, Sarah Hilton Watson, Fanny Garcia, Charlotte Roberts, Anna A, Alicia Barr, Louise Greenaway, Brandy McBride, Tio, like Neo, Caroline Robinson, Louise Finlayson, Shalette Lucas Osai, Connie Martin, Manat Bala, Sharon E, and McCrazy M. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week, our film review is Run Rabbit Run. Run Rabbit Run was released in 2023. It has 5 out of 10 on IMDb and 37% on Rotten Tomatoes. Sarah Snook plays a fertility doctor who believes firmly in life and death. But after noticing the strange behaviour of her young daughter, she must challenge her own values and confront a ghost from her past. So as always with our film reviews, we're going to go for likes and dislikes. And starting with the likes, I literally wrote down, oof, that kid is creepy. Right down to her little head tilts. She was a creepy kid. Okay, you know how I feel about bad kid actors. There is no excuse for a bad kid actor. But she was a good, creepy kid. And the way she would just sort of appear and she would tilt her little head as she said things. Oh, she gave me the heebie-jeebies. Like, drop kick that child down the stairs ASAP. Or alternatively, slam your child's hand in a car door ASAP. That's a reference to the film, by the way, and not just me being a big old sadist. She spends the film like sneaking around, being a little creep in her little homemade rabbit mask, just generally being unpleasant, smacking her ma every now and then. She was great, great, great scary kid. Oh, and not to mention, you know, apparently communing with the dead and uh, having information that she shouldn't and channeling the spirit of, you know, long gone people, etc, etc. Standard kid stuff. And there were a couple of moments in the film that genuinely freaked me out, like a couple of skin prickly moments, particularly pertaining to the little girl that made me go, "Ooh, ooh, this is this is making me want to look over my shoulder. So, you know, props for that. And the other kind of main character in this story is the little girl's mum. And 
I, I really liked her. I thought she was a good, flawed character, but completely believable. Like, she's not perfect. She gets things wrong. She's trying to navigate this world with her little girl. Her dad has just died. Her mum is unwell. She's going through a lot. And I really liked her. I really wanted for somebody to kind of step in and like look after her or be like, listen, I'll take this freaky kid away from you for a little while so you can have a bit of a break. And I I just thought she was a well-rounded, well-written character. And what I think this film did really well is demonstrate that, look, families are complex. Do you know what I mean? She has a really difficult relationship with her own mother. She's like estranged from her own mother. And I spent a lot of the film being like, Jesus, what happened between her and her mom that they're estranged and she's not with the father of Mia, the little girl anymore, but they have a really seeming seems like a really good relationship where they can have dinner together with his new partner and stuff. And I felt like it really showed family dynamics really well and that families can be sort of sprawling rather than being like one tiny family unit and that people don't always have positive relationships with their parents, for example. And it doesn't always need a big explanation. Sometimes there is just an estrangement. And and I thought that was really interesting. And I felt like it was a really good exploration of family trauma and generational trauma and how that can impact people. Like I really, I really liked it in that regard. I thought, yeah, I like a good cerebral horror, like a horror that deals with trauma and psychology and all that kind of stuff. I enjoy it. And I felt like, yeah, you know what, this film examined it quite well. And I spent the film trying to guess like, what are these family secrets? Do you know? Because you realise quite early on that there's some difficulties within the family and I really wanted to know, I really wanted to figure it out. And I think that's probably a testament to good writing that I spent most of the film being like, what what happened here? What is the dynamic between these people and why is the dynamic like that? However, in saying that, I think that also links to the dislikes, right? The film is a bit of a slow burn and I will admit that it took me two goes to watch it. So the first time I tried to watch it, I think I got about 20 minutes in, maybe about 30 minutes in. And I realised I'm just not paying attention to this. I don't know what's happening. I'm finding this quite slow and boring. So I stopped it and then I went back to the beginning and rewatched it again today. And it just isn't very exciting. It is a slow burn throughout. And I feel like it's definitely not a bad film. I enjoyed watching it and I did like the ending and I liked the story and how we were presented the story and the way that the story went I enjoyed but I just kind of felt like I've seen this all before and not because I literally had to watch the film twice. Now what I will say like I said in the likes I appreciate that it added this generational trauma kind of element to the story and how family dynamics can impact children etc etc and while I liked the ending I just felt a bit like meh. And I do think that part of my problem personally as somebody who watches a lot of horror films is that I've just seen too many and I feel like I can often almost predict the script of a horror film and how it's going to go and I don't know, like I think a lot of ideas in horror films are regurgitated and reused and repetitive and of course because people take influence from other films etc etc 
there are only so many storylines. You know, I understand all of that. But I just I just feel like fundamentally with this film, I felt like I'd seen it all before and I just wasn't blown away by it. But I absolutely do not think that 37% on Rotten Tomatoes is a fair score. I think fundamentally at its core, it had a decent story. It had good actors. It had a good creepy child. It had good characters. And I felt like I wanted to understand what was happening for this family. I think where it falls down is that it was a bit slow and it felt a bit samey. So for me, I'm going to give this film a three out of five. I know it's a shock for everybody. I know. Stop the stop the presses. But it's a three out of five for Run, Rabbit, Run. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Which brings us to our story this week. Now, as some of you may know, in April slash May, I went to the United States of America for a month and I travelled down the west coast of America and I started my journey in Seattle. Now, part of the reason that I went was because I wanted to do um, like a west coast of America series and I went to Seattle, I went to Portland, San Francisco, San Diego, LA and Las Vegas. And to accompany this episode, there will be a vlog about my time in Seattle. So if you were unaware, Real Life Ghost Stories has a YouTube channel and I sporadically post videos about various things. The link to that YouTube channel is in the description of all of the podcast episodes. So go and subscribe if YouTube vlogs are your thing. It's kind of going to be like a travel vlog style with some spooky stories thrown in and my experiences in Seattle, which include probably the worst ghost tour that I have ever been on and lots of chowder. But fundamentally, I thought Seattle was a really cool place with an amazing history. I mean, you could do tons of whole episodes just about the history of Seattle itself, just because it's really fascinating. And it's got loads of spooky stories attached to it. So let's get into it. In the heart of the Pacific Northwest lies a city that exudes a unique charm, blending natural beauty with a rich tapestry of history. Seattle, as we know it today, has a deep and often chaotic history that dates back 200 years. It is important to recognise, of course, before we go any further, 
that although European settlers arrived in Seattle 200 years ago, the land was inhabited by native people prior to this, and the arrival of the Europeans was not a simple and straightforward handover of lands. It was often bloody and brutal. The history of Seattle, the Emerald City as we know it today, began with the arrival of the Denny Party, a group of pioneers who settled in the area in November 1851. Led by Arthur A. Denny, they established a small logging community known as New York Alki. However, realising the vulnerability of their location to harsh weather conditions and limited resources, they relocated to the eastern shores of Elliott Bay, where present-day Seattle stands. The young city thrived as the economic centre for the booming timber industry attracting ambitious individuals seeking new opportunities. Throughout its history, Seattle has experienced many boom and bust periods, and during these boom times, the city grew exponentially. It was built up and out and expanded, and population grew, and people from all over came to Seattle to seek out a living, and people were also brought to Seattle as slaves. In the late 1800s, Seattle was a wild place and is often described as being completely lawless and was known as Sin City. Sex work was a booming industry. Human trafficking was rife. Plumbing was a luxury. Schools were pretty much non-existent. The streets were often flooded with both seawater and sewage, so it stank. Vermin was a massive problem and the potholes were so big that there was even a report of a fatal drowning in a pothole. On June the 6th, 1889, a 24-year-old Swedish man named John Back was working in Claremont and Company cabinet shop, below McGough's shop, in the basement of the Pontius building, when he accidentally tipped over a pot of glue. The glue being highly flammable, caught light and the timber shavings and turpentine that covered the floor were the perfect kindling. John Back threw water over the fire to douse it but of course the water only spread the fire further and soon the fire engulfed the whole block spurred on by the primarily wooden structures that lined the streets. Soon a liquor store caught fire and exploded which exacerbated the flames even further and the fire destroyed the entirety of the Seattle Business District in a day. It was estimated that around $20 million worth of damage was done, and the relief effort was enormous. The city was actually rebuilt in no time at all, and the population doubled from 20,000 to over 40,000 inhabitants in less than a year. Soon after the fire, the author Rudyard Kipling visited the city, calling it Quote, a horrible black smudge, as though a hand had come down and rubbed the place smooth. I know now what being wiped out means. The fire had some interesting impacts on the city. Prior to the blaze, there was a serious and hideous rodent problem, and this was all but eliminated thanks to the fire. And the city was fundamentally rebuilt a floor above where it has been previously. So under Seattle... There was now a warren of underground streets and buildings and legend has it that these underground spaces 
served as a playground for illicit activities, including opium dens, gambling establishments and lots and lots of sex work. Because sex work was a huge deal in Seattle and the history of sex work in Seattle is well worth reading about should you have the time and the inclination. Seattle's history is a tapestry of triumph and tragedy, woven with the resilience and determination of its residents. From its humble beginnings as a logging outpost to becoming a hub of innovation and technology, the city's journey is a testament to the indelible spirit of its people. And of course, there has been tragedy and mystery along the way. And for today's episode, we will be exploring some of the most haunted spots in the Emerald City. There are few businesses that are consistently lucrative, but death, death remains eternally consistent and Edgar Ray Butterworth had death on his mind and dollar signs in his eyes. It was the early 1900s and the death trade was booming in Seattle. People were poor and disease was rife. It spread like wildfire through the back streets and the brothels and as the bodies mounted up, Edgar Butterworth came up with a cunning plan. He could capitalise on the deaths by creating a one-stop death shop in the city. And in 1903, the Butterworth and Sons mortuary was born. You see, he had been a furniture maker. And there was always a need for furniture, but when black diphtheria hit the city, the need for coffins was even greater. But Butterworth wanted a more professional heir to his business. He didn't want to just be a funeral director or a coffin maker, no. He wanted it to sound sleeker and he began referring to himself as a mortician, which certainly had an air of class about it, and the building he referred to as a mortuary. And Butterworth and Sons became a one-stop shop for death in the city of Seattle. Now, of course, when you work in the death trade, there are bound to be certain rumours that spring up throughout the years, but let's firstly deal with the facts. The building itself contained everything you would need in the event of the demise of a loved one. They had a coffin showroom with coffins that were built on site, and of course a separate room for child-sized coffins. They had all sorts of burial attire for corpses that you could include in your funeral costs, and send your loved one into the ground looking their absolute best. There were family rooms with bathroom facilities for those who were reluctant to leave their dead loved ones. There were private viewing rooms, equipment rooms, embalming rooms, a chapel and storage spaces for funeral wagons in the basement. Butterworth was the first person on the West Coast to own a hearse and he used embalming techniques that formed the basis for embalming techniques that are used today. They also were one of the first buildings to have an elevator that was, of course, used to transport bodies up and down the building. Butterworth and Sons, to their credit, did not discriminate against anyone in their funeral industry. They catered to rich and poor and even offered a body retrieval service that saw their death wagon rolling out into the streets to collect bodies from wherever they had fallen. Butterworth also willingly cleared the debts of those who were just too poor to pay for his funeral services. Death can be expensive, after all. 
Like I said, however, dealing in death means that you open yourself up to certain rumours and for years, stories have swirled around the streets of Seattle about just how far Butterworth and Sons were willing to go to cash in on those who shuffled off their mortal coil. Many will say that Butterworth was partial to helping people on their way to death for a happy little sum of $25. You see, in order to ensure that bodies were disposed of in the proper manner, citizens were offered $50 by the local council if they delivered a body to Butterworth's, and Butterworth collected half of that amount, and some speculate that perhaps Butterworth lusted after that money just enough to create a few bodies of his own. But in reality, that probably didn't happen. And it is likely that working in the death industry and his strange connection to one Linda Hazard is what has prompted these rumours over the years. Doctor, and I use the term doctor loosely here, Linda Hazard was a woman who many call a serial killer. She referred to herself as a doctor and was a proponent of the starvation method of curing all sorts of ailments. The starvation method is exactly as it sounds and many patients died under her care. She insisted that they had not died of starvation but rather of other undisclosed illnesses. Eventually she was tried and sentenced to 2 to 20 years in prison of which she served 2 years. The Poisoner's Cabinet podcast do a full deep dive into her crimes on episode 80 but during her trial... Butterworth and Sons were implicated in the scandal. Allegedly, they had cremated one of the patients that Linda Hazard had starved to death and then produced a different, less emaciated corpse for the funeral. One could only assume that a large amount of money changed hands for that one and while Linda Hazard was convicted... Butterworth and Sons were not convicted of any wrongdoing, but yet again, this did nothing to quell the rumours that have persisted to this day. Butterworth and Sons is no longer a mortuary, but it is now Kells Irish Bar, and like many other bars all over America, it too claims to be the most haunted bar in the USA. While today the bar is a bustling hub of food, drink and revelry, it seems that there is no escaping its maudlin past. When the managers of the Kells Irish Bar bought the building, they were not unaware of the building's strange and somewhat spooky history, but they were keen to turn it into a cosy and welcoming spot for locals and visitors alike. In order to do this, they needed to embark on some much-needed refurbishments. The refurb was pretty straightforward, except that the workers were experiencing odd little incidents that at first went unnoticed, but when they did notice them, they suddenly couldn't stop noticing them. Snatches of giggling throughout the building, the pitter-patter of footsteps, tools disappearing and reappearing in strange places, and then finally there came the picture. One of the workers had approached the new owners of the building almost sheepishly. I need to show you something, he had said. I don't know what it is, but I know I need to show you. Some of the guys have been noticing strange things happening while we are working, like weird sounds and stuff. Anyway, 
I was taking photos of what we had done and what we needed to do and then I saw this. He presented the owners with a photo. They looked at the photo. It was a dark and somewhat blurry image of a room on the fourth floor. They couldn't see what he was so desperate to show them until he zoomed in. There, looking at the camera, was the white face of a man. His face was snow white. His eyes were black hollows. And his mouth seemed to be stitched shut. But as happens in these situations, a man with hollow eyes and a stitched up mouth cannot stand in the way of business. The show must go on, as they say. The bar became popular. But things would happen all the time that seemed to defy logic or explanation. Glasses would fly off the bar and smash. Muddied handprints appeared on the windows and in bizarre places. Places where it just couldn't have been the staff or the customers. In November, the activity in the bar seemed to be at its most active. And there is a suggestion that this is due to an outbreak of the Spanish flu in Seattle in 1918. In that November, the city was hit particularly hard and people were dying in their droves. Is it possible that November is a month of spiritual significance for the building that housed the bodies of the masses of people whose lives were cut short? It is difficult to ascertain who or what is causing the poltergeist-type activities in the bar. And for the staff and regulars, the activity has become part and parcel of their lives. But there are some elements of the paranormal activity that are slightly more difficult to live alongside. We always marvel at people who just continue as normal when living or working in a haunted establishment. But do you ever really get used to working alongside the ghost of a small child who regularly appears in the daylight hours? She is perhaps the most frequently seen dead resident of the Kells Irish Bar. And she has been seen by both workers and customers. She is young and wears a scarlet red velvet dress and has red ringlets cascading down her shoulders. It seems that the little girl in red is drawn to the activity in the bar, particularly during daylight hours when children are often in the bar eating with their families. She is positive and playful and seems to be a bit of a prankster. Old toys often pop up on the bar, little dolls and puppets that seem to be left for other children by the little girl. She appears at random and suddenly, and can often frighten people. But she does not seem to hold any negative intentions. She does, however, regularly appear playing on a disused staircase. But her apparition often has no legs. Another apparition that has been frequently cited in the pub is of an older man who they have named Charlie. His spectral image appears in mirrors around the building and he always appears suddenly and wearing a derby hat. He seems to make himself known more frequently when there are musicians in the bar and there is a belief that he is a positive and social spirit. But unfortunately, not all of the spirits in Kells are so benign. The mother of one of the current owners fell down a flight of stairs one night, except she maintains that she did not fall. She maintains that she was pushed violently by an unseen force. 
Kells Irish Bar is located in the historic Pike Place area of downtown Seattle, which is not only a hot spot for history buffs, but Pike Place is also said to be the most haunted place in all of the Pacific Northwest. The Pike Place Market has a long and interesting history, but in the interest of brevity, it was opened in 1907 and was immediately incredibly popular and expanded year on year. Today, it is a bustling hive of merchants selling produce, food and goods, and there's a fair amount of fish throwing too, and it is the most popular farmer's market in America. Of course, it has a rich and diverse history, and it is believed that some of its residents and vendors have never left the marketplace. One of the most famous ghosts of the Pike Place market is that of Princess Angeline, who was the eldest daughter of Chief Seattle of the Duwamish tribe. Her Duwamish name was Kiki Soblu, but the early settlers called her Princess. In 1855, the Treaty of Point Elliot decreed that all of the Duwamish native people were required to leave their land and move to reservations. But Kiki Soblu refused. She ignored the decree and remained in the city. She lived in a waterfront cabin on Western Avenue between Pike and Pine Streets, and rather than feeling as though anyone needed to force her to leave, the Seattleites viewed Kiki Soblu as the link between the native people who had resided in the area for generations and the new city dwellers. She made her living by selling hand-woven baskets and taking in laundry, and was a permanent fixture on the streets of downtown Seattle. She was widely respected and would be seen walking the streets with a red handkerchief over her head and as she aged she became stooped over, walking with a cane with a shawl wrapped around her shoulders. Kiki Soblu died on May 31st, 1896 and her funeral was huge. The residents bandied together to ensure that they gave her the best send-off that they could manage. Her funeral was held at the Church of Our Lady of Good Help and her casket was made in the shape of a canoe. But of course, it is believed that Kiki Soblu never actually left her waterside cabin. The Pike Place Market was built where her cabin once was, and over the years, she has been sighted many, many times. People have reported seeing a little wrinkled old woman bent over using a cane with a red handkerchief over her head shuffling through the market, and they have believed that she was a real person until she disappears before their eyes. Witnesses also report that as she walks through the market, her feet barely touch the ground as though she is floating. Others have stated that she seems to emanate a glow, an aura that changes from glowing white to lavender and to blue and pink. The area of the Pike Place Market was Kiki Soblu's home. Daughter of Chief Seattle, she must have felt a deep connection to the land. It is reasonable to imagine that she could not bear the thought of leaving her homeland, her people's homeland, and as a result her spirit has remained attached to that land both in life and in death. Whatever the reason for her staying around, Kiki Soblu continues to be a resident of the Pikes Place Market to this day, and of course she is not the only ghostly resident of Pikes Place. According to Kathy Alexander, writing for Legends of America in December 2021, the restless spirit of Arthur Goodwin, the nephew of original Pike Place market developer Frank Goodwin, has also been spied at the market. 
Arthur was instrumental in helping Frank in the continued development of the market in its early days. From 1918 to 1941, Arthur held the job of market director and was often known to look down upon the market's happenings from his upper-level office. Now called the Goodwin Library and utilised as a meeting room, Arthur's silhouette is often seen looking down from the library. He has also been seen swinging a golf club in his old office. Another legend tells the tale of a spirit most often referred to as the Fat Lady Barber, who continues to lurk about the market at night. Evidently, in the 1950s, this fat barber was known to sing to her customers and sing them to sleep with soft lullabies. After they were comfortably snoozing, she helped herself to any cash in their pockets. However, some time later, before the renovations were made to the market in the 1970s, an area in the floor gave way and she fell to her death. Today, maintenance workers report that they hear the sounds of lullabies when they are cleaning at night. Several shops within the market tell a variety of tales. At the Bead Emporium, a small boy continues to dwell. When renovations were completed on the business a few years ago, a basket of beads was found in a wall that had not been accessed for many years before the store even opened. He was believed to be hoarding the beads in the wall to play with. Other strange things happen at night, such as the cash register drawer opening and closing of its own accord. This little spirit has also been known to visit the marionettes in the puppet shop. Sheila's magic shop is also said to be haunted by the spirit of a woman who inhabits a crystal ball. Called Madame Nora, this restless spirit haunted Pharaoh's treasure shop before landing at Sheila's. According to the tale, Pharaoh's treasure received the crystal ball from an old woman who wanted to trade it for a scarab. Though the old woman warned the shop owner that the spirit of Madame Nora was residing in the crystal ball, the owner thought little of it and made the trade. Almost immediately unexplainable things began to happen, most notably numerous objects being moved during the night. Madame Nora is said to have been a woman who ran a place called the Temple of Destiny in the early days of the market. She is known to have practiced crystal gazing, Egyptian sand divining and psychic projection. She continues to leave her paranormal imprint today. Weary with the strange occurrences in Pharaoh's treasure, the crystal ball was passed on to Sheila's magic shop owner. At a Greek deli called Mr. D's in the Triangle Building, the owner tells of spirits known to fight in a downstairs walk-in freezer. Some of his staff are so frightened of the duelling spirits that they refused to go in there. And at the Shakespeare and Co. bookstore, the owners would arrive every morning to find the same book off the shelf and on the floor. Brushing it off each day, it was placed back on the shelf only to find it on the floor again the next morning. Finally, the book was destroyed. The Pike Place Market is only a tiny fraction of the city of Seattle and it is also only a small fraction of the downtown area. As you can already tell, the ghost stories are numerous. Because of the sheer number of ghost stories and the sheer volume of mysterious characters whose stories still are told in Seattle to this day, it is inevitable that we will return to Seattle at some point to explore some more spooky stories. 
But for now, if you do end up visiting the Pike Place Market at any point in the near future, while you are wandering and enjoying everything it has to offer, have a look around and see, are the people that you are seeing really there? Or are they the ghosts of Seattle's past that just can't quite leave? So we are going to pause there for now and let's let's discuss. And I think when you when you look up Seattle, you know, if you if you trip advisor the kind of top things to do in Seattle, the Pikes Place Market is the main thing to do. And and I guess if you're familiar with the area, you might be like, oh, I know these ghost stories already. However, I think it's often quite nice to look at the most famous ghost stories of a place because that's the place where people are most likely to visit. So if you go to Seattle, it's very likely that you'll take the time to go to Pike Place Market. So I think it's quite cool to know the ghost stories of the area. And also those ghost stories incorporate a huge amount of Seattle's past. And I guess I didn't realise kind of how sordid the history of Seattle is. And I mean, in, in some degrees, the history of lots of cities is sordid. You know what I mean? And there's sordid parts of every city that you go to. But, you know, Seattle was essentially built on a a, a lawless world of like sex work and... <laughs> gold mining at times and all that stuff and it seems to have been a pretty pretty wild place and during my research for this episode um I was particularly particularly drawn to John Back so the 24 year old Swedish man imagine your name going down in history as being the guy who started the great fire in Seattle like what an absolute kick in the arse that is Like, clearly it was accidental, but you'd be like, oh, shit. At what point was he like, oh, no, looks like I've burnt the whole city down. Shit. But if you get the chance um, to look up the history of Seattle, it's genuinely really interesting. I was pretty ignorant to the history of the city of Seattle. Like, I didn't really know anything about it. But things like Skid Row, things like the history of sex work in Seattle, it's really interesting, genuinely. So we first looked at the story of Butterworth and Sons. Again, really interesting story without all the macabre stuff. Like it was the essentially the first, you know, one-stop death shop in America. And actually Edgar Butterworth is said to be the person who coined the phrases mortician and mortuary. And that in itself is pretty cool. And like I said in the story, like apparently the embalming techniques that are used in America pretty much started with this one guy in this one shop. And embalming techniques in America are apparently different than embalming techniques that are used in Europe. There you go. Little fact for you. I am personally fascinated by the death industry. I think it's really a fascinating industry and the history of it is really interesting. And I just I just don't think that Edgar Butterworth was out here killing people to get a few extra bodies. I just don't think that's true. I think unfortunately when you're big in the death industry I think that people are going to be like well he's getting money for bodies so maybe he's knocking a few people off and claiming money for their bodies when in actuality I don't think that is true. I think the link to Linda Hazard is really interesting so like I said again in the episode the Poisoner's Cabinet did a really really good episode on um, on Linda Hazard and she referred to herself as a doctor she wasn't actually a trained doctor but because of something called like a grandfather loophole she was able to claim she was a doctor or use the title of doctor and obviously it's a difficult episode to listen to from the Poisoner's Cabinet I mean that in a 
in a in a not in a negative way, but it deals with some pretty serious topics like, you know, people died from this starvation method and she actually ended up going off to New Zealand after her sentencing, I think, and continued with her starvation practices. And there are places that still practice the starvation method to this day. I would be really interested to know what the situation was between Linda Hazard and Butterworth and Sons that they cremated the emaciated corpse and presented a different one. Clearly, clearly Linda Hazard realised, shit, this is not going to look good that this person has died and people are going to realise they died of starvation. How do I cover this up? And I, I just, it, there must have been money changed hands to in order to do that it's a pretty wild part of the story and again probably didn't help with their uh with the reputation of there being like a secret dark side to the Butterworth and Sons mortuary and the mortuary is now an Irish bar and listen it fits right Irish people we love death we love a death ritual and we're very good at death so it makes sense and look I'm going to be the first person to say it right I've posted the picture that was taken on the fourth floor in Kells Irish Bar on Patreon, on Instagram and on the Facebook page. Am I convinced that it's a man with a stitched up mouth? No, I'm not. Is it a little bit freaky? It's a little bit freaky. I will give the picture that. But I'm not convinced it's a man with a stitched up mouth. It's got a certain vibe of the Del Toro film The Orphanage to the picture. But I just, I just think saying it's a man with a stitched up mouth might be a bit of a stretch. And what is it about little girl ghosts all having ringlets? Who's doing their hair in the afterlife? It's like Danos used to say. They're like, you know, Monty Burns dressed up as a little girl in that episode of The Simpsons. Why do they all look like that? And in all the sources that I looked at for this episode, you know, all the sources were like, she's a nice spirit. She's a playful spirit. I don't care. Okay. I don't care. If I'm seeing a legless little girl in an Irish bar and... She's not legless because she's drunk. She's legless because she physically has no legs. She's getting drop kicked. Okay, it's happening. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to be the one that has to say it. I'm going to drop kick her and I'm going to go, that's for not doing something different with your hair. Okay. You know, equally with the spirit of Charlie, I get it. It's, you know, a positive figure there. He's a benign haunting, etc, etc. I would simply expire if I looked in the mirror and saw the apparition of a of an old man in a derby hat I I would just expire there and then and I really wanted to include the story of Kiki So Blue or as she was kind of colloquially known Princess Angeline because I thought her story was really beautiful and what a strong and resilient woman because that like you know that was her land that was her father's land he was chief Seattle And then she was like, I'm not leaving. I'm staying. Me and my wooden hut, we are staying and I'm going to continue to live here and I'm going to continue to make my living and nobody is going to make me leave. And there are actually numerous uh, photographs of her. So she was photographed numerous times by various photographers and uh, they're pretty amazing photographs. There's a great photo of her sitting on the porch of her little wooden house and yeah it's just it just honestly look it up it's a really cool picture and there's lots of pictures of her and as as regards kind of the rest of the ghosts of pike place market like i honestly laughed at the spirit of arthur goodwin imagine being a business guy 
you're you're just a business guy, stereotypical business guy, and your ghost is seen swinging his golf club in his office. I mean, is that not the stereotype of the typical business guy? If you're not perfecting your swing in the afterlife, what are you even doing? I also particularly was enamoured by the story of the fat lady barber who sounds like a less stabby version of Sweeney Todd. With less cannibalism too, actually, to be fair. But probably just as much singing. It's also just a ludicrous story. Do you know what I mean? Was just singing lullabies to her customers to get them to sleep and then robbing them. You tell me nobody's talking to each other in the 1950s. I loved these stories and I also loved Seattle and I... When I was in the Pike Place Market, I pretty much was more more chowder than woman at that time because I, I ate an obscene amount of chowder while I was there. And like I said at the beginning, there will be a vlog to accompany this. Uh, it'll be on YouTube in the coming days, I would imagine. So if YouTube is your thing or you just want to have a nosy at the different places in Seattle, then um, the link to the YouTube is in the description of this video. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you would like to send in your own spooky story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast.gmail.com. You can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And if you are desperate for some extra content, you can subscribe to the Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free. And on that note, I shall see you next time. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.